What is up, everybody? I'm back with another edition of the Macro Insights Podcast, where I'm joined by Lauren at Adulting is Easy. She is a real estate investor in the Tampa Bay area, similar to me. She specializes in short-term rentals, but also has a stock portfolio, too. So it's not all just short-term rentals. We get into a lot of different things. We get into Lauren, her background, a little bit about her family upbringing, what made her more inclined to be an investor, the overall real estate market, short-term rentals, analyzing short-term rentals, what are the advantages and disadvantages of short-term rentals, inflation, and how that could affect the STR market opportunities to get in the game, how she is positioning herself for a potential economic downturn, and lastly, some words of advice for new investors. But as always, please do not take this as financial advice, as everything said in this podcast is strictly for entertainment purposes only and should not be taken as financial advice. So please, please, please do not take it that way and do your own research and your own due diligence. Now, let's get into the episode. What's up, everybody? I'm back with another edition of the Macro Insights Podcast. But first, I'd like to thank my sponsor, Inverse. Inverse is a social and collaborative investment research platform. Many companies like Robinhood have increased the access to financial markets, well, Inverse is increasing the access to high-quality investment research and discussion. The entire platform is built around top-notch data and tools that allows you to analyze over 10,000 stocks and ETFs seamlessly, write about them, and speak with others about them. So in the coming weeks, you'll even be able to link your brokerage account and share your portfolio to maximize that credibility when you're writing and speaking about certain stocks and ETFs along with the access to clean your portfolio with certain analytics tools. I myself have been using Inverse for quite some time, and I deeply enjoy the discussion on my Green Candle Investments group, so be sure to join that. And with all that, I have a very special guest. I have Lauren at Adulting is Easy. She is the host of the Adulting is Easy podcast, and yeah, she does a lot in the real estate space. So we'll be uh, diving into that. So Lauren, how are you doing today? Hey, Brandon, I'm doing well. Thanks for having me. Of course. Thank you so much for ha- uh, for coming on. So why don't you start off by telling me and the audience a little bit about yourself and how you got started investing? Yeah, absolutely. So I am based in the Tampa Bay area of Florida. And I got started investing. I think technically I will count when I bought my first house, which was in 2012. I went under contract at 22 and closed at 23. And really the equity that I built there has kind of launched my real estate portfolio, what it is today. And right now I have three properties. It's a total of 12 doors. That's eight short-term rentals and four long-term rentals. So I am primarily invested in real estate Although my husband and I also have um, about $500,000 in our stock portfolio as well, mostly in retirement. Um, so I'm, I'm more known as adulting is easy for the real estate stuff, but I just want people to know there is another side and I, I am a little more balanced than it might seem. 
Yeah, I know. I definitely get that. I think there's like kind of room for for all kinds of investing, um, you know, whether it's real estate, stocks, ETFs, what have you. Um, I think it really depends on your goals and what you kind of get out of investing or what you're looking to get out of investing. Um, so, you know, when you got started, was there something that kind of, uh, I guess, led you a little bit more towards real estate? Um, you know, or something maybe in your past or your upbringing that brought you there? Or, uh, you know, did you just kind of find your way there because of uh, your first uh, home purchase? Yeah, so my parents are pretty good with their finances. My mom has a finance degree. My dad has an MBA. And I'm not saying that automatically makes you good at finance and personal finance. Certainly, there's no way that it it is a direct correlation. But they were really good about answering my curiosity questions when I was a kid. I think to some extent with money, you're a little predisposed to being good with it or bad with it for whatever reason. And I was always kind of good with it. And I would ask them questions all the time. And they would answer them like straight up, like, hey, dad, how much money do you make? And he would tell me, you know, stuff. So um, and they would tell me stuff like if we paid cash for a car and why we would do that. I remember when I was like 13, they financed a car and I was like, what? And they explained to me that it was 0% and they had the cash, but they put the cash in the stock market instead and, and stuff like that. So they were always really good about answering my questions. And when I graduated college, I was looking for a place to live. I was working as a manager at Toys R Us and it didn't really cross my mind that I'd be able to buy. I thought I would definitely have to rent, right? Because, you know, who goes from college straight to buying a house? But my mom was like, well, let's look, like, let's see. And my mom had purchased two homes by the time she was 24. And so it wasn't this crazy idea for her that I would buy a house at like 22, 23 years old. And so I did. And um, shortly after that, that, that bottomed me out like money wise. I had like no money after that. And I was making like $30,000 at Toys R Us and I needed I needed it. Even though I had a roommate and, and was helping with the bills and stuff, I still needed kind of every penny. And so um, it wasn't until the following year when I switched jobs, got into corporate training, which is what I'm still doing now, when my dad started talking to me about the 401k. And then the next year he talked to me about a Roth IRA and um, by then, my house had appreciated quite a bit. So I ended up with like $100,000 of net worth kind of in my mid-20s, sort of by accident, and then slowly started to be a little more purposeful with everything from there. Yeah, that's awesome. So I, I mean, 22, 23 to purchase a house, that's a pretty daunting task, to say the least. Um, so, you know, how did your parents kind of help, I guess, prepare you for that? Um, you know, did they, uh, I, I know you, you said your mom kind of gave you that little initial push to look, um, but, uh, you know, was it maybe some of that confidence factor just from, you know, seeing what they've gone through and, you know, how successful your parents have been from investing that kind of uh, gave you that confidence to, you know, go through and make that purchase? I'm not really sure. My mom, like I said, she had two houses. So she had her first house and then she bought a rental property you know, back then. And my mom's in her 60s now. So she had that house. She sold it last year to my brother, the second house that she bought, and she sold it to him. So she had the second house for 40 years. And that's it. Now they have just a primary. Uh, My dad never wanted real estate. He never wanted her to buy any more real estate. And so she's been like living vicariously through me and helping a lot. And I think she's always liked real estate. And so she looked at that as an opportunity to almost buy, it was like a rental house. It was like what her rental was. Three bedroom, two bath, one car garage, terrazzo floors built in the 60s or 57, I think. 
very similar. And she just liked real estate. And so, but my dad didn't want, like, didn't like it. My dad's all stock market, all passive, save 20% and you're good kind of a thing. And so I think she was just living vicariously through me. And even in the last couple of years with the short-term rentals and stuff, like she'll, she's helped a ton with that. She loves looking at furniture. She loves decorating. She loves finding good deals on stuff for kitchens and all of that. So she definitely, I knew I had them as a backbone and I'm also blessed where I knew that if I ran out of money or something, they would help me out too. Luckily that, that never happened. But, um, cause I, I bought my first house before I ever purchased like a car. You know, I still had my car that my parents bought me when I was 16 and I knew right after I bought that house, you know, I had this, <laughs> I had this like Ford Focus and it had like 90,000 miles on it. And I was like, all right, now I need to like double down and save for a car. Cause that's going to be the next thing. And so, um, luckily that, you know, I never really ran, ran out of money or anything, but definitely hugely supportive parents and really, really encouraged curiosity around money. And, um, you know, for, to a point when I got into the real estate in the last couple of years, they, they, for the most part, think I'm off, I'm off the rails, but it, it started, I was very similar to them. Yeah, no, I completely get it. And, you know, on the note of real estate, like, I think it's really interesting right now, as we've seen kind of Prices from new homes, uh, you know, because of the COVID pandemic and, you know, money printing and all the other things uh, kind of skyrocket. And now it seems like they're somewhat stabilizing, at least in the Tampa Bay area, um, you know, where I'm located as well. But, you know, how do you uh, see like the Federal Reserve raising interest rates affecting the housing market like overall? Do you see it, uh, you know, kind of helping stabilize those uh, maybe overpriced homes? Or do you still think like, in certain areas that, uh, you know, prices can still increase. I think think we are definitely going to have a leveling off of prices. I don't think generally prices are going to drop. I think a lot of people are hoping for that and rightfully so. It's a very competitive market. Prices have gone up. I am every day grateful that I bought my first house 10 years ago and that I wasn't facing that now. And so I understand that sentiment, but I do think it's really just going to cause things to level off, not grow as quickly. And I don't think people are going to be paying a ton above asking and they're not going to be getting into these bidding wars and things like that. Because if you think about it, in order for somebody to sell a house, they need to be going somewhere else. And once you've owned a house, let's say they want to own another house, they're probably sitting on a mortgage. Either they got it in the last few years or they refinance in the last few years that's 2.6% maybe up to like four at the max. And so anybody that's leaving their home, they know they have to go get a mortgage at five and a half percent ish right now. And so that's just going to cause less people to be buying because people are not going to be moving, but it's going to cause supply not to be as much too. So I just think generally we're not going to have the frenzy that we've had in the last couple of years. I do think certainly that Florida, the Tampa Bay area, I don't think, I think the cat's out of the bag. I'm pretty bullish on it. Naturally, I live here, Um, but I think we're going to see a bit in this particular area of what we saw in Denver, maybe a little bit to a lesser extent, but like Austin, Vegas, there's been some areas that have really had kind of that were kind of discovered, I think, where their true intrinsic value has been found. And I think that's what we're seeing in the Tampa Bay area and in Florida in general. Gotcha. And you've mentioned this a couple of times about short-term rentals. So, you know, this is kind of the first deep dive I'm doing in real estate in this podcast. So why don't you define that term uh, for the listeners? Short-term rental 
probably are going to hear it kind of being like synonymous with Airbnb, right? Like a Kleenex and a tissue. Um, But so that's what a short-term rental is. And it basically means you have people staying in your property for less than 30 days, multiple times per year is technically what it is. In our case, we allow typically from three night stays to up to 28 night stays. The three night stays, it keeps just your weekends from being booked because, you know, I don't think that I would make as much money in short term rentals if I was just renting out for Fridays and Saturdays. So we do have a setting that, you know, as things get close, we do open up to two night bookings for Friday nights. Um, But typically it's going to be three to 28. And the 28 days is because any more than that in the state of Florida, at least, they become tenants, and then you're in an, evic- an eviction situation if they don't leave, and then you would need a lease and things like that. So that's the reasoning, and that's basically how you would define a short-term rental. Gotcha. Yeah, so there's some unique laws, I guess, it seems like, where, you know, it, depending on the length of the stay, you would actually need a lease agreement. Yeah, I, that's something I didn't really know, because I think, you know, that I've heard the term medium term rentals and I, and I'm not sure if there's like, I don't know, the lease requirements or anything like behind those, but I know maybe like some travel nurses and other people kind of come and stay for like three months or so at a time, opposed to, you know, uh, maybe an Airbnb just month to month or, or something along those lines. But, um, overall, I think like this market is very interesting, but, um, you know, a, a big question that comes to mind is, is how do you analyze, uh, you know, what to charge on a nightly basis um, compared to maybe like a long term renter who, you know, just uh, or a long term uh, investor who essentially just looks at, you know, market rent and other things like that? It's actually a very similar process. Um, so for long term rentals, and I have created some guides for analyzing both long term rentals and short term rentals and I'll make sure that you have the, the the link to that so you can put that in the show notes. But basically, if you're if you're gonna put a long-term rental on the market, you're going to check probably rentometer or rentometer, maybe it's pronounced, or Zillow as well. See what's what's listed for rent in the area and make some kind of assumption about, you know, kind of what percentile is your property and is there anything that sets it apart from others in the area? Because you could have something that's, say, a mile away, but if your place is on the water and that one's not, then, you know, it's not really a good comp or you should make an adjustment, right? So that's how you decide what you're going to charge. And then there's also rules of thumb for kind of what your expenses are going to be. There's some things that you can check, right? Like you can have an insurance broker that you can talk to about what the insurance would be on certain places. You can, um, in the case of Pinellas County, there's a tax calculator on the Pinellas County Property Appraiser website. So you can calculate what the taxes will be. And then there's kind of rules of thumb for property management, maintenance, capital expenditures, things like that. So all of those things are generally the the process is the same. For short-term rentals, you're going to look at something called AirDNA. We also buy dashboards from Price Labs, which is our pricing software that we use that we integrate with Airbnb and VRBO. And so we buy those dashboards for certain areas that we're interested in. And that's going to tell you, and you can obviously look, you know, look on Airbnb, look on VRBO and see what the pricing is. Um, But those can kind of help you figure out what your revenue is going to be. And then it's the same thing, right? You have your revenue, either it's your rent or your average daily rate, right? In the case of long-term rentals, you need to allow for vacancy, 
Um, same thing with short-term rentals too. You can make some assumptions that way, but AirDNA is going to tell you what they think your revenue will be, including vacancy. In the case of short-term rentals, you've got cleanings that come out of all of that, right? But you're going to have property management potentially, and then the typical stuff, right? Maintenance, utilities, insurance, taxes, and I always put capital expenditures, a uh, like a savings for it in those. And then you're going to look at your cash on cash return and your cap rate. And maybe if you want to go really in depth, which I don't get into in my guides because it's kind of high level and there's a lot of assumptions, but you could do um, IRR over a 10-year period as well, which takes into account the sale price typically is kind of the big difference with that one. So when I analyze short-term rentals, I make sure that the place will at least break even as a long-term rental and I don't mean that it pays the mortgage. I mean, breaks even once you take into account vacancy and maintenance and capital expenditures and, and things like that. Gotcha. So what are some of the advantages that you see of being a short-term rental host or you know, owning short-term rentals opposed to long-term? I like the ability to use the places, right? So we do this interesting thing where our primary residence is listed on Airbnb. And if it books, then we move to another one. So um, that allows us to do maintenance on our properties, see what it's like from a guest experience, also kind of arbitrage our vacancy a little bit. And so there's always the owner use aspect to it. If you have somebody with a 12-month lease, you literally can't use it, right? It's literally impossible. So um, so there's that. I also like the cash flows better. I mean, there's no way around it. You know, I don't want to dance around that fact. The cash flow is a lot better with a short-term rental than a long-term rental. But you're also incentivized more to keep the property up, make it really beautiful, keep it painted, have nice landscaping and things like that. So I typically have been had a little more pride in my properties that are short-term rentals versus long-term rentals because you're literally incentivized to keep them beautiful. There's also you have to have a little bit of a passion for probably your area and people experiencing it. Like you just, you want to give people an amazing vacation or a beautiful experience or have them experience, you know, for me, the Tampa Bay area of Florida or other parts of the nature coast, which is the West coast of Florida. And people are a little happier. Um, I, I will say I'm not typically talking to my long-term tenants because things are going well, you know, but with guests, you're talking to them. A lot of them will just tell you, oh my God, this is, this is amazing. I had somebody tell me the other day, this is, I got the best sleep I've gotten in 34 years in your place. And I was like, wow, like that is so cool. And it's those little things that make it worth it. So there are, it's just, I think it's a better fit for me, for my personality. There, it, there's um, a lot of business aspects to it too. You're looking, how can you increase revenue, decrease expenses or decrease your vacancy? In a lot of cases, there's a little more creativity, I think involved, especially once you get into furnishing and decorating and things like that too, that I really like. And it's certainly more time consuming. That's why you make more money because you're putting in more time. If it was the same amount of time as long-term rentals, then there would be no price difference. There would be no cash flow difference between the two. So I hope that that was a little long-winded, but I hope that answers the question. No, that's great. Uh, this, that's what this is for, right? Some long-winded answers, but you know, <laughs> I think, uh, you know, everybody kind of gets the worry of, uh, or a lot of people get the worry of when they hear Airbnb, you know, a lot of parties, I know Airbnb recently kind of disbanded that with COVID and kind of kept that, you know, away. But what are some other disadvantages maybe uh, that you see or have experienced with uh, short-term rentals? Or maybe if you've even got a story of, uh, of a bad uh, tenant that's come in, um, feel free to share that as well. 
Sure. I hedge against parties pretty hard. I use a property management system called Owner Res, and that allows me to take renter's agreements and security deposits. And I also have smaller places. So I have studios, one bedrooms, and two bedrooms. And we've only had, in, we've probably had 300 guest groups, I would say. We have over 200 reviews on Airbnb and there's not everybody leaves a review and there's some VRBO. So probably 300 in total. And we've had one party. So that's pretty good. Um, it was in our biggest unit, of course. So we do have this two bedroom unit that's about 1600 square feet it's on the water. And it's the one that we normally go to if, if this house rents out. But so we were able to kind of know pretty quickly that there was a problem because our tenants told us. So we have a six unit apartment building where we have three long term tenants as well as three short term units. We have a duplex where there's a long term tenant and a short term unit. And then we have this property where we're normally here and there's a couple cottages in our camper. So there's typically people in every area that are going to be looking out for the property and they're going to be aware and they have my number. I have them on my my list where they can get through my do not disturb if I'm sleeping. Right. So um, our tenants messaged us, uh, you know, we've had one party in all this time. We've gone on a few vacations, no issues. Of course, we're skiing, right? We're in Colorado skiing for this one. And normally we'd be 20 minutes away, but we weren't. And our tenant, she texted me and she said, hey, these new people came over and gave me their phone number and said, we're going to be here all weekend. Here's my number if we get loud. And she's like, and it was like a kid. I was like, oh, okay. So I messaged the guest through Airbnb and she said, oh, and, and my tenant said, oh, we have like eight or, they have eight or nine people there. So I messaged, I said, hey, you know, how did check-in go? Just a reminder, you're registered for three guests. Hey, check-in was great. Met the people next door. Everything's awesome. So I'm like, all right. They left out the fact that they have nine people. So there's, uh, there's shadiness happening. And so we called Airbnb and we have cameras. They are fully disclosed. And, you know, you could see these people sitting on the back patio passing what I assume to be marijuana in a circle and drinking and a guy taking off his shirt and running out on the dock, like he's going to jump in. And, you know, it actually was kind of, it was actually kind of golden because I really didn't need anything else to give Airbnb. So Airbnb canceled their reservation. I messaged them and said, Hey, we have everything on footage. You have 30 minutes leave, or I'm going to show the cop. I'm going to show this to the cops. And you could see all of their heads turn and look at the camera. And I'm like, yeah, it's there. And there's signs and it's disclosed. And like you signed a renter's agreement that said it was there. So anyways, uh, they they were canceled. They left really quickly. They sang happy birthday and then they left. And so there's no parties, right? Like Airbnb has this no party rule now. And so you can't make this up. Our air cleaner goes there. She walks in. There's a sign that says, let's party. And I'm like, wow, really? And so there's cake. They left uh, and they messaged me and said, we left some sodas in the fridge. It was beer. They left a crap ton of beer in the fridge, which I personally, I don't care how old I am. I think they're underage. I'm taking a beer with me, right? Which I, whatever. So they left the beer. They left a cake. They left like a tarp under the table because I'm sure they were playing beer pong, right? Just kind of classic case for this was a party. But Airbnb got them out. They were out by 11. We got to keep all of the money from the reservation and their security deposit. And Airbnb paid an extra $100 to my cleaner for the, the additional cleanup. So it really, it, it wasn't too bad. And that maybe would have stressed me out at some point, but really my husband and I, like we were having a glass of wine in Colorado, just kind of laughing about it, just how, how amateur that was and kind of patting ourselves on the back with, 
Um, I'm glad we got cameras. I'm glad we had the renters agreement and the security deposit and that we have tenants who are loyal to us and want to protect the property. Yeah. I mean, it sounds like uh, you guys were definitely prepared for everything that I guess could have been thrown at you in that situation. So I, I guess that's my biggest takeaway is just, you know, prepare for this kind of stuff. So, you know, an Airbnb seems like really worried, uh, really willing to work with you on this. And, and, you know, it seems like it's an effort from Airbnb too to kind of crack down on these things as well. Um, and so, uh, but, uh, you know, on this note too, like, it seems like, uh, you know, we're, we're, we're reaching like a kind of a unique time in uh, the economy, right? Where we've seen like massive inflation. We're seeing, you know, uh, prices of things go up left and right. Maybe people aren't taking quite as many vacations. Uh, do you kind of see this inflationary time negatively affecting the short-term rental market? Or do you kind of, uh, I guess, tweak the pricing or do anything else to kind of prepare for, you know, something along these lines? It's been a little hard for me to tell because in Florida, our peak season is January to April. And then we have kind of this shoulder season from May to July. So kind of at the peak of gas prices and at the peak of inflation was also kind of the time that we would be dropping off naturally anyways. Um, But I do think the higher gas prices affected us. There's a bunch of different types of Airbnb or STR investments, short-term rental investments. And kind of the big boys, the big ones you know about are the national re- the national tourist destinations. So Gatlinburg or Nashville or Destin, the Blue Ridge Mountains, you know, obviously everything like at the ski resorts and things like that. And those I think will suffer in a recession. Those are very expensive vacations to take. We have purchased in what I kind of think of as a regional area. Sure, some people fly in to Tampa Airport and um, we have a driver that they call and the driver drives them to our place and stuff like that. But we have a lot of people who drive kind of regionally. And so my thesis, I don't know if it will be proven right or not during this environment or if you know we do enter kind of a real recession. We're in a recession now by the definition that I learned at school. But, you know, if we start losing some of the job gains that we've had and and things like that, and if inflation doesn't go down, but it looks like it is, I like to think that maybe we'll we'll get people that would normally have gone to those national hotspots and they will downgrade their vacations a little bit and maybe do a driving vacation to a regional area and end up in our short-term rentals. Um, But we won't really see much effect of that until January. We're going to be relatively slow until then. And and we're taking advantage of that um, by doing maintenance and things. I gotcha. Well, you know, on that note, do you see this as like kind of a good time to get into some short-term rentals? Do you think that, you know, maybe regionally in the Tampa Bay area, it would be good? Or uh, do you think, you know, maybe it depends on like certain locations? Do you think like you know, maybe because Gatlinburg or some of these other hotspots are kind of feeling it right now that, you know, maybe uh, owners are more inclined to sell some of these uh, short-term rentals that they have in these, I guess, more desirable like vacation spots. So in the last couple of years, prices have gone up. And so I think a lot of investors have sold their properties. And these new investors, if you're thinking, especially Florida, right, the taxes are up. The insurance is up insane. I don't know if people know that our insurance is up 20 to 40% year over year. 
And so anybody that's bought property recently, really in order to cash flow at all, would need to do a short-term rental. And so for this and a bunch of other reasons, I'm sure there's been a huge supply increase in short-term rentals in the last two years. And of course, I'm I'm part of that, right? I got into, we bought this place. It was a bed and breakfast. We bought this in June, 2020, did the remodel, went live January, 2021. And so we have been part of this, I mean, 20, 30, 40% year over year increases in the supply. And so this is going to bring the average daily rates down, bring vacancy up. And I think what we're going to see is people actually exiting the short-term rental market, especially people that don't have a passion for it. If they don't have a passion for hospitality, they don't have the systems and processes in places in place like we do or great people. I think we're going to see some people fail that probably started recently. And by fail, I mean, I think they're going to switch back. I think they're going to switch to long-term rentals. So we have a high supply right now. So I don't know if it's the best time to get into short-term rentals. However, you should be analyzing deals. If you're interested in getting into real estate, whether it's long-term rentals, mid-term rentals, short-term rentals, or frankly, commercial deals, anything, right? Wholesaling, whatever. You should be running deals every day. And if the numbers work, the numbers work. I would run them conservatively. I would run the numbers conservatively. Um, you know, AirDNA is going to give you a number, maybe dial that down by 10% or uh, Rentometer is going to give you 25th, 50th, 75th percentile of rent numbers. Maybe assume you're lower when you're running for long-term rentals. Just run your numbers conservatively. But if you find a deal, you should buy, of course, especially here's, here's the thought. If you're financing and numbers work now and you can refinance in a couple of years, they're really, really going to work then. So it's hard to say blanket statement, should you be buying, should you not be buying? I will say we are taking out, my husband and I are taking out a HELOC on this property so that we are ready to make a move because we believe that interest rates are going to go down soon and that we will be able to refinance and that because there's not as much competition in the market that we'll be able to get our hands on something potentially. But that's just part of real estate investing. You should always be looking and you should have an abundance mindset, not a scarcity mindset. Just because you don't find something today does not mean you're not going to find something tomorrow. There's tons of ways to make money in this world. You just need to have your eyes open and be open to it. I really believe that. Yeah, definitely. And I, and I agree with you 100%. You know, everything that I've read about real estate investing or, or heard about or listened to or whatever, you know, they all kind of say that, right? You know, it's, it's no matter what, like it's uh, if as long as you're analyzing the deals being conservative, you know, whether the price fluctuates uh, slightly in the short term uh, shouldn't be that big of an issue, because like you said, you know, maybe you're worried about rates now. Um, and, you know, rates were obviously a lot lower, uh, you know, a couple years ago. But, you know, at that time, too, people were flocking in and buying like crazy. Well, now people are maybe not buying as much because the rates are a little bit higher. So there's less competition. Right. So there's kind of, mm -hmm. you know, that give and take that that comes with real estate investing. But I also kind of have this theory, too, we've, we've touched on it slightly throughout this episode as well. But I have this theory that housing will be affected very differently in like various places, right? So we've seen, you know, places like California, New York, people kind of leaving and going to, uh, you know, more, I guess, um, more open places, like, quite frankly, like during the, the whole pandemic and, and everything like that, um, like Florida, like Texas, maybe like a Tennessee 
And we've seen a lot of the, you know, the rental prices shoot up. I know that, you know, in Tampa Bay as well, I could seen some of the most uh, increasing rent prices in the country. Um, do you kind of see that, you know, rent and housing prices um, in the Tampa Bay area kind of or Tampa Bay and like Texas and some of these other markets um, kind of continue to increase? And then, you know, on the flip side, some of these other less desirable places kind of decrease? Or do you kind of just, I guess, focus on, um, uh, you know, a, a little bit closer to home when you analyze these deals? With the exception of 2008, really, real estate prices have gone up and down more by region than anything else. And of course, somebody realized that. And that's why they did, you know, created derivatives and mortgage-backed securities and packaged all of these things together from across the country because that was supposed to diversify the risk. But of course, it caused kind of a systemic problem. But with the exception of that, real estate has been a little more regional. I think anybody that's around our age, right? I was, it was my freshman year. It was the week of my 19th birthday when Lehman Brothers crashed, right? So very formative years, very formative time. And I think it's natural to be very jaded and worried that the real estate market is going to do things across the board. And I think that's probably not true. I don't know about you, Canada with their variable debt up there. I don't know what y'all are going to be doing. But in California, I, I think California, I was just there a couple of weeks ago. It's beautiful. I just, you know, I mean, of course here in Florida, like we have a lot of state pride, especially like coming out of COVID. There's a lot of like, you know, the free state of Florida. And we're the best state in the country. And of course I, I do believe that. But um I just don't know that we're going to beat California out. I don't, the people out there, they're kind of okay with paying taxes if they're, if it's 72 all the time, you know? So, and we don't have that. It is hot. We have, uh, we have really bad hurricanes, knock on wood, not so far this year. Of course they have fires and stuff, but I don't see California taking a big hit, even though we're kind of seeing this, this exodus a little bit to Texas and Florida. I don't think we're going to see real estate drop out there. I just don't, I, I just don't. Um, Texas and Florida, they're going to continue to go up. There's, there's really, there's no question. I really think they've been discovered and I think people are having a little bit of FOMO, right? I hear people all the time. I'm in sales. I sell corporate training. They're like, Oh, I want to live. I want to move to Florida. I'm going to move to Florida someday. Or my, my sister just moved to Florida. My parents live in Florida. And I just think that's just going to continue. And I think people see it as an investment as well, right? I think people think why not buy in Florida? It's going to keep going up. You know, I, I don't know what the climate change situation is or what those impacts will be. But I do believe that, yeah, Texas and Florida, it's going to continue to go up. There's been a, like randomly Boise, Idaho, like went nuts. Like everybody from California moved to Boise, Idaho. We might see a little correction in that kind of instance where it like went crazy high for a second. Maybe we'll see some of that in Austin. I'm not sure. Um, but overall, I think we're going to see real estate continue to go up, maybe some regional drops. Um, but to answer your question more directly for myself, I am, you know, I'm the nature coast of Florida girl. That's the West Coast. It's really kind of the last thing that in my mind is, is sort of undiscovered. If you look at uh, I was doing this the other day. If you look at a picture of Florida at night. There's one place where there's not a bunch of lights and that's the nature coast. And I think that's where the development is going to be. It has to be. That's where people are going to start vacationing. We have a, our six unit apartment building on that coast and it's in this very old, sleepy old Florida town and you can't get that anywhere else. So 
I think Florida is going to keep going up. I think Texas is going to keep going up. I don't know about the Midwest. I don't know about kind of those other Southern states that are almost so cheap. You kind of can't even fathom it, It, you know, like whole houses for 50 grand. It's just, I don't know what's going to happen there, but even a small correction downward in those markets is hugely detrimental. If a $50,000 house goes down to 45, it may never get back up to 50,000 again with the appreciation in these areas. So um, overall, you know, I, I don't know. I, I don't know what will happen in New York. Um, you know, upstate New York is actually very cheap. I don't know if maybe more people will leave there. I've seen online and forums that there are invest whole investment groups that will not put their money in a blue state ever again. Um, the regulations are harsh. The landlord tenant laws are harsh and they got hammered during COVID. They weren't allowed to evict anyone and they did not have to collect rent. And, and that was, that was terrible. A lot of people got hurt that way. There's still people dealing with that. I mean, in some cases, once somebody is in your house, they can stay there like forever almost. So, um, I think we will continue to see Texas and Florida for sure increase a lot. And I, I really, again, I'm kind of rambling at this point, but that's where I'm going to keep investing. I'll tell you that. Yeah, exactly. So, I mean, you kind of uh, hinted towards it a little bit earlier talking about your HELOC, but is there anything else you're doing to, I guess, kind of uh, personally position yourself for the potential of this economic downturn uh, to kind of maybe prepare to make another move or, uh, you know, are you keep analyzing deals or just kind of like staying the course, I guess? We're putting some money into our properties as they are. We just redid the dock at our place on the water. We put in many split systems instead of wall units here in the cottages. We are doing kind of a lawn remodel at our six unit. We also have a an empty lot near our six unit that is kind of set up for parking, but we're going to get that like truly set up for parking with curbs and gravel and things like that. So we are trying to make our existing properties better so that we can generate more revenue from them rather than having to buy a new place and pay that high interest rate. Like you mentioned, we're, we're getting the HELOC. I left a job recently rather than just leaving it and, you know, going full bore into the vacation rentals or the short-term rentals and adulting is easy. I've taken another job. And right now my husband and I are really pounding our brokerage account. I mentioned earlier, we have a, you know, a few hundred thousand dollars in stocks. Most of that is in retirement. We do want to retire early. So we're kind of going back and doubling down on our brokerage account and having the cat stacking some cash too from my job. Um, our real estate pays all of our bills. We're technically financially independent, but we still both have pretty well paying jobs. So we're just taking this time to kind of shore everything up, do some, you know, do some renovations, some capital expenditures to our properties, get the HELOC, you know, put some money in stocks and then also stack some cash as well. So we can be as, as bulletproof as possible. We also have a mix of long-term rentals and short-term rentals. So it's not as, you know, if, if the short-term rental market does go down or something like that, we do have the long-term rentals as well still. Gotcha. So, um, you know, you mentioned it too, kind of, uh, on that, the long winded rant, but you, you mentioned that you kind of, uh, you know, maybe talk in some real estate forums or something along those lines. What are some of the resources that you use to kind of help, I guess, uh, that used uh, to kind of, I guess, hone your skills when it came to real estate and kind of, uh, you know, educate yourself. Yeah, I read a lot of the Bigger Pockets forums, Bigger Pockets podcasts. I was on their rookies one, number 42. You can find me there. 
um the books i have like six bigger pockets books i was looking through them the other day and writing a thread for twitter and they have a short-term rental one which i just read and i do recommend um i forget the name of the author but you know it's probably the book on short-term rentals or something but that was really good um, i have a ton of people that i'm connected to on twitter i'm very active on twitter and i've really cultivated a really great circle of people to learn from i am in a lot of facebook groups you know, Superhost Facebook group. I'm in the Airbnb vent group. I have a mentor as well. Last year, we did an Airbnb swap where uh, she came from Wisconsin and stayed here with her family. And then we went up there and met her kind of both times. And she has helped us a lot and helped us with a lot of the automations and things like that. And um, I also have someone locally here who has a short-term rental in the Tampa Bay area that I run things by also. So there's, you got, you really do always need to be learning and, and things like that. And, you know, this podcast, all podcasts, I'm, I'm a big, big fan of podcasts. I like them because I like to bike ride and things like that and clean my kitchen, whatever. And I feel like I can be productive if I'm listening to a podcast, like double productive if I'm listening to a podcast at the same time. So those are some of the resources that I've used over, over time. Yeah, exactly. I love podcasts as well. So uh, I, I agree with that 110%. You know, anytime you're doing anything driving or whatever, I feel like you could always just pop one on and learn, learn something new or just kind of, uh, you know, just hone in those skills or refine them as well. So um, Lauren, you've been very kind with your time. So I'm going to wrap it up with one final question. What are some words of advice for any investors who are looking to get into the real estate game and kind of get started right now? Ah, oh, that's an easy one. So people should house hack. And that means buy a property, live in part of it, and rent the rest of it out. If you look at your budget, or if you don't have a budget, if you just look at where your money goes, that number one line item, unless you have some crazy car or something, is probably your payment on your housing, whether that's your rent or your mortgage. And that's what I saw in 2019, early 2020. I was like, I make good money. My husband makes good money. We must be able to retire early. And I ran the calculation. It was like 55. Like, that's crazy. You take that mortgage payment out of there and it drops it by like 20 years. It's like, it's kind of insane. And so that's, you can pay your place off, but you're still going to have taxes and insurance. However, if you buy a place that is uh, just a regular house, you could do what I did when I bought my first house, which is where you rent out bedrooms. You can buy a duplex, triplex, or quad with a regular conventional mortgage. That means a 30-year fixed loan here in the United States. You can live in one of the units, rent the other ones out. There's also houses with mother-in-law suites, above garage apartments, basement apartments. Uh, some friends of mine, they bought a house with a mother-in-law suite, and they lived in the mother-in-law suite and rented the house out. And they tell a really funny story about everybody thought they were like dead broke and stuff, but they actually owned the place. So, you know, that's the best thing that you can do. Get rid of that payment. And that's going to allow you to, you know, get a bunch of appreciation on that property. But you're also then going to free up some cash flow either to buy more real estate or put money in the stock market or crypto or whatever your investment of choice is. Yeah, and I and I second that notion as well. It's actually what I'm doing right now. So I'm in the top unit of a duplex, and then I'm Airbnb at the bottom. Uh, I I did have a long term renter, but you know, I I don't know. A friend approached me and said she'd manage it for me if I let her do the Airbnb. So I'm like, all right, go for it. Uh, makes it a little easier on me. So um, yeah, I definitely agree. I, I you know, it's a ton of advantages, and it helped me get into. 
um, you know, the real estate investing game with little money down and, uh, you know, you get a better interest rate and, and all these kind of other advantages as well. So, uh, yeah, I couldn't agree with you more there. So, um, yeah, I think that's great advice for people looking to get in. And, uh, yeah, you should definitely consider it or start looking into it for sure. So, uh, like I said before, you've been very generous with your time. So I really appreciate you coming out. Why don't you tell everybody, you know, what you got going on and where they can find you? Yeah. So I have a podcast called Adulting is Easy. It's called Adulting is Easy because if we make uh, funding easier, we make adulting easier. And so that's found pretty much everywhere. There are podcasts. I do offer one-on-one coaching. People have been asking for that. So if you're setting up a short-term rental and you want to run some things by me, you can find me at realadultingiseasy.com. I mentioned it. I'm at Adulting is Easy on Twitter. I'm the most active there. Um, you know, reach out to me. I'm, I'm pretty approachable. I'm, I do get a lot of messages. Um, but as of right now, I'm still able to get back to, to every single one of them. If you want some one-on-one time, I do have that, that option as well. And Brandon, thank you so much for having me. It was fun. It's a good conversation. Of course. Yeah. Thank you so much. We'll have to do this again. Uh, maybe when you, uh, you know, get another property or something like that, we can break that down. So, sure. uh, all right. Well, thank you so much. Thank you.